because not only would people pay to see this hoax, but they started paying Barnum to see the hoax of the hoax. And so today we are going to look at a story of deception that things are not always as they appear. Things are not how we think they are. And sometimes they're quite maliciously put there to to rob us and distract us and steer us off course. And so today on our journey through Joshua, we are going to look at this great deception in chapter 9. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to cover chapters 9 and 10 as we get through this narrative. And so we're just going to kind of skim through the highlights of this chapter. So if you would be turning in in Joshua, Joshua chapter 9, and you can follow along there, and and we're going to skim through some of it. Chapter 9 opens here where the area kings have heard of the great victories in in Jericho and Ai, and they are fearful of Israel. And so these kings have come together to, to come into an alliance with one another to go against the Israelites. The Israelites are strong and mighty, and if they are going to defeat the Israelites, they're going to have to come together and battle Israel together. But there's one group in particular that that decides to do something different. These are the people of Gibeon. They decide not to go to war with Israel. They decide on this great deception, starting on verse 4. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes All the bread in their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. And so this is the start of the deception. We have come from a faraway land. So make a treaty with us because it's really not going to be that big of a deal because we're really far away. And so they come in looking like they have been traveling for a very long time. Now, the Israelites aren't complete suckers, and so they start asking some questions, and they dig a little bit further, trying, trying to interrogate them and see what's really going on here. But all of their worn-out clothes and the old moldy, moldy rations, this must be evidence that they are actually from a distant land. So we can make a treaty with them. Verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions. This is really weird. They sampled their moldy provisions to make sure it was moldy, I guess, um, and did not inquire of the Lord. Key thing there. They did not inquire of the Lord. They're going off of their own taste and their own perceptions of what's going on. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. So they said, yes, we will be in treaty with you. We will be in alliance with you. There will be peace between our peoples, even though we don't know where your peoples are from. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors. Uh Uh-oh. Just a few days into it, they are not what they said they were. They're actually neighbors. They are actually living close by, and they have very specific rules from on what they're supposed to be doing with the people that are living close by. And so the Israelites set out on the, thir- on the third day, and they came to their cities. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. 
So they had made this oath. They're stuck. And so they go to this city. The Israelites are upset at this deception. They, they, it, there's grumbling among us. But they feel bound by the oath. They're going to follow the commitment that they've made. And so instead of killing them, they say, okay, we are in peace with you. So here is the deal. You are at our mercy because of this deception. So we are going to make you the woodcutters and the water carrier, carriers for our worship assemblies, for our worship gatherings at God's house. You're going to be the woodcutters for the sacrifices. You're going to be the water carriers for, these, for, the, for the work of what will become the temple. And so the Gibeonites accept this merciful compromise. It's better than death. It's better than what we're going to see happen to the king coming up in chapter 10. But they have earned this life of submission, this life of service to the house of God. But we see here once again this theme that occurs through, throughout Joshua of Israel's relationship with outsiders. We've talked a lot about outsiders through this. That the Gibeonites are outsiders and there is this peace that is created with outsiders who are willing to be in a peaceful relationship with God. And so that gets us to the end of chapter 9. And in the opening of chapter 10, we return to the scene of the kings who are coming together to battle against Israel. And they find out that there is this treaty that has been established with the Gibeonites, and they're not happy about this, of course. And so these kings join together to attack Gibeon, knowing that if they attack Gibeon, then Israel will have to come to their defense. Starting in verse 6, the Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. Because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Big surprise there, right? So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, this is the first time the Lord speaks since chapter 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them among, along the road going up to Beth Haran and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Mechadiah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon and Ezekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. So God is fighting for his people. These are the kings that are antagonistic against God and against his people. And so they go to war with them in defense of the Gibeonites, these ones that they are now in treaty with. And so Israel runs to the rescue of these new allies. They march all night long and they fight this battle. And ultimately it is God who wins this battle. It is God who throws the people into confusion and God wins the battle for them. And now we get to this interesting detail of the story in verse 12. This is where the story gets a little strange. 
On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua turned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. And so we have this episode where Joshua asks God to stop the sun so they can win the battle. And it seems like the narrator of the story is actually surprised by this because the narrator kind of jumps in and says, there's never been a day like this. This hasn't happened before and hasn't happened since. The Lord listened to a human being. The Lord listened to Joshua in his plea for mercy, a plea for this opportunity. And so the sun stands still, and they're able to fight the battle. And so the five kings that have allied together, they go running and they go hide in a cave, but Joshua and his men find them in the cave. They close off the cave and trap them in the cave. And then Joshua and the Israelites continue to pursue the people and continue to defeat them. And then they return to this very bloody scene in the cave where they execute the kings. And then the chapter concludes with the account of this conquest of all the southern lands. So we get through the end of chapter 10, and there is great victory for the Israelites as they have gotten the land that God has promised. But the last two verses, look at verse 42 and verse, verse 42 and 43. These last two verses provide this very clear reminder of whose battle this is. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. And so we have this scene, these scenes here of, of this relationship being formed with the Gibeonites, them becoming insiders instead of outsiders, uh, the kings rising up against Israel and, and them going out and battling with the kings. But, but God is intervening with this battle. He has the sun stay up until the battle's over so they have enough time to win, and God fights this battle for him. Now, as we read through this, there can be this huge disconnect between what we see in Joshua and what we see today. None of us are out in, in a battlefield pursuing enemies and, and trying to kill kings in caves. Uh, that's, that's not our life's work right now. And so thinking about what does this mean for us as Christians today, what does it mean for them then, it can be a bit of a disconnect. And so thankfully, we're not in a holy war right now where we're slaughtering God's enemies. Uh, that's not our calling right now. Uh, God has called us into a very different battle, a battle that is not of flesh and blood. But when we, when we fail to remember that we are actually in battle, when we fail to remember that there is a spiritual battle that is going on around us, that there is an enemy at hand, waging war against God and against God's people. When we forget that, it lulls us into a place of comfort. 
It, it lulls us into an easy place of just showing up to church on Sunday and going about our normal lives as if nothing is really that different. We go about our jobs, we go to school, we, we go about our activities and, and the things that are around us, and, and we fail to realize that we are actually at war, that there is a battle being waged against us, and we are called to be active participants in that battle that we need to be prepared for that battle. In Joshua, the conquest is confronting the ruling powers of the day and demanding that they would submit to God. And those who would submit to God, like Rahab and the Gibeonites, they were spared. And the ones who would not submit to God, like the kings who are in this battle in this chapter, they perish. But there is this battle of, of confronting the ruling powers. And we see the, story, the rest of the story throughout the Old Testament of how well that works, how much submission is there to God. And we see that eroding away over time, that they're no longer submissive to God. And we, we see the, the kingdom breaking in two, and we see the exile throughout the Old Testament where, where they are not submissive to God's will any longer. And then we have Jesus who comes in and God is yet again confronting the rulers and the powers of the day. We're going to start in December looking through the Gospel of Luke, uh, beginning there in the stories of, of Jesus' birth. And from the very beginning in Luke, he talks about Jesus confronting the rulers and the powers of the day. That those who are in authority are not submitting to God's power. And so Jesus comes in to flip that world upside down. And so Joshua, the battle is of flesh and blood. But it's still a battle that's being fought today. It's still a battle being fought by God. And so for Christians, for us today, our battle is a spiritual one. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is our struggle. It's not with the, the Canaanite kings. There is something much darker and more sinister at play as we battle in the heavenly realms. And so God sends his representatives into dark places to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. He sends us into the dark places, into the lands that he wants us to claim, as the church that he wants to be an offensive weapon that the gates of hell cannot withstand. We go into these dark places. And just as in Joshua's day as it is today, there are two responses of when we go in there. One response is to accept and submit to God, like Rahab and the Gibeonites. Another is to reject God, like the kings of the Canaanites, who were hostile towards Israel. And so when presented with the good news of the gospel, there are two choices, to accept and submit or to reject, which is, a, which is a choice that leads to death. And so as we've talked about throughout Joshua, God promises to be present in the battles. He, he promises to be with us. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid in the battles that you find yourself in. 
He is present. He's the one who is fighting for us. He empowered Israel to go through their plan, and as Christians, he empowers us through the Holy Spirit to give us the confidence, to give us the hope that we need in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And so this type of spiritual warfare, it really calls for a certain kind of soldier, someone who can, can engage in this battle in the way that it needs to be engaged in. And, and we see through Scripture a lot of different characteristics of what this could be, but this story highlights three specific ones. Three characteristics of, of what it means to be a soldier in this battle. And the first one is, there are people of their word. There are people of their word. Now, in the world that we live in, is this a virtue that is held high? To be someone of your word. To let your yes be yes and your no be no. Or is it something that can be manipulated and changed and adjusted based on the circumstances that you're in? Because the Gibeonites came and they, they deceived Israel with this treaty. It, this is a treaty that was built on, on lack of information and wrong information. That they present a certain, a certain self to them. They, they say, this is who we are and it's not really who they are. And the Israelites engage in this treaty with them anyway. And then when they discover what the truth is, they don't nullify the agreements. They stay with the agreements. They hold true to their word, regardless of the circumstances in which it was made. And regardless of how the circumstances changed. They were going to be a people of their word. They were committed to letting their yes be yes and their no be no. And so as we think about the spiritual battles that we find in, what testimony would it give to the world around us to let our yes be yes and our no be no? Can we really be known as a people of our word? A people who once you enter into an agreement, regardless of how difficult it gets, regardless of how circumstances change, we are going to be a people of our word. Joshua and the Israelites were people of their word. They stuck with their commitment to the Gibeonites regardless. But then the second characteristic we see, uh, particularly in Joshua and the role he plays in this story, is being a people of mercy. A people of mercy. As they come to Joshua and say, hey, we want to be in a treaty with you. We want peace with you. Their fate rests in Joshua's hands at that moment. That at, at that moment, even before the treaty is made, he can squash it and say, no, you are enemies. But he showed mercy. These are people who are seeking peace. They may not look the part. They may not act the part. They may not have all their theology and doctrine downright. They might not be in the right place at the right time, but they show mercy to them anyway. You want peace with God? You may not have it all perfect, but we're going to show you mercy anyway. Joshua, the, the, the entire book is this, this book that looks so bloody, but as we talked about in the story with Achan, there is a great story of forgiveness and grace 
embedded into the story of Joshua as well. That for the Gibeonites to come to them and ask for mercy and for mercy to be extended is this incredible example for us. That, that even in the middle of battle, in the middle of this hostile place, Joshua asked this question of, how should I treat people who choose peace over war, who accept some basic truths of God? How should we treat these people who are seeking peace with God? Would God make an exception for them in the same way that he made an exception for Rahab? And the answer is yes. In the end, Joshua chooses mercy. He saves the Gibeonites and then extends that mercy once again whenever they find out that the entire treaty is based on a falsehood. And once again, they are at the mercy of Joshua. They can be executed on the spot, but instead he gives them mercy. He gives them not only life, but gives them this unique role in their worship gatherings. That they're to participate in something holy in this work as woodcutters and water carriers. Psalm 103 reminds us that the Lord is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. What a powerful reminder, especially in the darkness of the story of Joshua, that God is compassionate. He is gracious. He extends mercy to us. And as his representatives, he calls us up to be distributors of that mercy as well that we extend mercy on his behalf. The third thing we see is the, that they are a people of prayer. They're a people of prayer. This scene right in the middle where Joshua asks God to cause the sun to stand still. And God listened to a human. God listened to Joshua. And so in the middle of this, this bizarre scene, there is this, this bizarre prayer request. God, make the sun stand still. And so prayer is one of our most powerful weapons when we're talking about the battles that we're engaging in. As we engage with the, the heavenly realm, we need heavenly tools. We need spiritual tools. And prayer is one of these tools, one of these weapons. And so prayer and the answer to prayer is not simply a nice thing that God does, not a nice thing that he gives us. It's not just something that is, is simple. These are, are weapons in a cosmic battle. Weapons in a cosmic war that we're engaged in. And so what is our prayer life like? As one of our greatest tools, 
An answer to prayer testifies not only God exists, but it also testifies to our personal contact with him. And so will we engage in prayer as if our lives depended on it? Will we battle the darkness in prayer like others' lives depend on it? This just gives a whole other layer of what our prayer lives can be like. As you think about it being a real battle, a battle between good and evil, a battle between light and dark. This is part of the reason why we're, we, we've launched a prayer ministry that meets at 8.30 every morning to pray for this gathering, to pray for your request, to pray for you by name. It's the reason why we have a prayer board out in the foyer to say prayer is important. This is a battle place. This is a battleground. And we have to be preparing for what happens when we go out of these doors. Prayer is hugely important to who we are and what we do. And so will we engage in a battle that's around us? There's a powerful story from Ed Dobson, who was a traditional old school minister at an old traditional church. And one day he comes to his congregation and says, I want to do a four-month experiment. For the next four months, I want to have a Saturday night service. And on Saturday nights, we're going to in invite street people and prostitutes, and homeless that live near the church, and we're going to invite them in on Saturday evenings for a service that is specifically designed for them. Something that is specifically created for where they are and what they need. I'm not going to offer a sermon. I'm just going to do a 15-minute talk about God. We're going to pass out three-by-five cards, and they're going to submit their questions, and I'm going to answer their questions as a part of this Saturday night gathering. And so they would put their name on the card, and he would go through and answer those every Saturday night. Of the Sunday morning crowd, he just asked that they would pray for the experiment, that they would pray that God would work through that. And so the street people audience came. There was over-the-top music. There was a short talk about God. There was questions and answers, just as Ed had said. But during the first two months, he was dumbfounded when he looked up in the balcony every Saturday night and saw this group of three ladies from the Sunday morning congregation. They would sit up in the balcony every Saturday night, and he finally asked them why they were there. And this thing that was not designed for them that they really did not fit into and they said, oh, it's about the questions. He said, the questions? You know the answer to all these questions. You don't need the answers to these questions. And they said, oh, no, no. It's the names on the questions. Because as you read the card and read the name, we write down the names. And that's our prayer list for the week as we pray over these names, 
and pray for their salvation. These are ladies who understood the battle that's going on for the hearts of people. Battles for them to to submit to the power of God or to reject God. And these are ladies who are willing to fight that battle every Saturday night as they would listen for those names and pray over those names. And so will we engage in this battle? Will we be a people of our word? Will we be a people of mercy? Will we be a people of prayer? Because there are Gibeonites around us every day, around us today, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, maybe even in our homes, those who are outside of the kingdom, who are looking in to see what kind of people we are and wondering who this God is. They haven't yet exchanged their rebellion. They haven't yet exchanged their rejection of God. But will we cultivate a place of belonging for them? Will we be a place where they can maybe look different, maybe not have it all figured out? Maybe they're coming under deceit, under false pretenses. Maybe their motives are not pure in why they're coming into this place. Maybe they want something out of it. But will we engage anyway? Let's be standing. We're going to spend some time in prayer this morning. As we, we get into this place of, of warfare, of battle. And so many of us have things that are going on in our lives that we are fighting against. And I want to encourage you to engage in that with someone else in prayer this morning. It can be one of the shepherds down front. It could be someone in your life group. It could be friends or family, someone, uh, maybe one of your teachers or somebody that you're comfortable with. Engage in those battles together in prayer. Seek someone out to fight with you. Stop fighting it alone. Because Satan wants to isolate us and get us by ourselves so he can pick us off. So stop doing it alone. Invite someone to engage in this battle with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your words of life that are given to us. We thank you for the great mercy that is shown to us. And God, show us how to be people of mercy, people of love, people who can, can engage with you and on your behalf. God, we submit to you and we submit to, to your calling on our lives to be a church, to be a people who are a people of our word, a people of mercy, a people of prayer. Help us to grow in those disciplines. Help us to grow in those characteristics. And God, for the the struggles that each of us are in, I pray that, that you will move mightily in those 
We pray that you will bring healing. We pray that you will bring restoration. We pray that you will bring reconciliation in the broken areas of our lives. Where there is addiction, we pray for freedom. Where there's hurt, we pray for healing. Where there's separation, we pray for reconciliation. God, we pray that you move among us. Be glorified by what we're doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.